Thank you, Luke and choir, students as well in there for leading us this morning through song and worship. And Luke, thank you for leading us in the reading of the word as well throughout those times. That way our worship would be a dialogue with God. God speaks to us and we respond to him in worship. Our habit at Woodlawn is to uh, preach expositionally. And what that means is that a natural occurrence of seeking to be expository results in us walking through books of the Bible. As you know, for the last, I don't know, perhaps year or more, we've been walking through Romans. Um, but today, we're taking a little bit of break from that. Just one week off from Romans, we'll be back next week, back in uh, November of last year. Pastor Lewis offered me the opportunity to preach on this Sunday following Easter, anything that I wanted to. And so, of course, I thought, how about something regarding worship? Is, is that a surprise to anyone? I, I doubt it. Um, and so I thought this would be a good opportunity to, opportunity to still be faithful to the text of Scripture. I do want to say, even though we're taking a break from Romans, we are not taking a break from proclaiming what the Word of God has to say about a certain topic. Rather, uh, than what some might do and bring a topic and try to fit the word to it. We are not doing that today. We are looking at God's word first and then making some conclusions on that about worship. If you've been visiting Woodlawn or, you, or you're a member of Woodlawn for any length of amount of time, uh, you know that we seek for our worship to be driven by the word of God. And if I were to ask some of you, what does that look like for us? Then you would say, oh, it means you... You shape the whole order of the service around God's word, and we do, we shape it by a pattern we see throughout the word of God, of God revealing himself to us, a man responding to God in praise and adoration, but also in confession of sin. Then God, the dialogue continues. God then reveals to us that he offers us forgiveness of sin through Christ, and we respond with assurance of salvation. And then God is speaking to us. And that's what the sermon is. It's, it's the revelation of God's word to us. And then in turn, we respond to that in commitment and devotion to serve God. And in following that, we're sent out to serve God. And so we follow this pattern, which is based on biblical pattern, week in and week out. Now, certainly there's a lot of freedom in that. What we do in the midst of that liturgy, if you will, is, is different each Sunday. The songs that we sang today, we didn't sing last week. The readings of scripture that we read today, we didn't read last week. The words of the sermon today aren't the same as the words of the sermon last week. So there's great freedom in that, but the bones, the structure of our worship each week uh, remains the same. It's the biblical pattern we see in worship. And so each week as we're shaping our service around the word, we're also making sure that each item of our worship, whether it be the songs, the prayers, the scripture readings, the sermon, is all driven by the text of scripture as well. And that, the same text of scripture. So whatever that sermon text is for us on any given Sunday, everything else is being informed by that as well. So you might have noticed the very first song we sang this morning was about the holiness of God. You're going to understand really quickly why it was important for us to read from God's word, him revealing himself to us as holy, and then us responding to him with praise and adoration because of his holiness. It's going to be really apparent in a little while uh, why Luke read from the book of Hebrews in this language of draw near, which is pulled from 
the book of Leviticus as well. So all these themes uh, we, we see in our worship, they're, they're chosen and they're driven and they're filled with the word of God. But there's another way in which our services are regulated by the word as well. And that's in the items, the specific items that we choose to populate our service with. And really, at the end of the day, I said we choose, but we, we only choose because God's word has directed. There are many ways that churches today regulate their worship. Some churches take a, uh, a pragmatic, uh, pragmatic direction. They're going to choose items for worship that will serve an end. Maybe the end is evangelism. That's very, very worthy end. Maybe the end is the entertainment of the people in the pews. Whatever that end may be, it's not necessarily one that's driven and regulated by the Word of God. And so that's a really common, common way we see churches today designing their service. What, what will it do to achieve the end that we want? Rather, we follow a pattern of being regulated not by preferences, not by pragmatism, but regulated by the Word. And what this means is that everything that we do in worship is what God has told us to do in worship, not what we want to do in worship for the sake of our own pleasure or the sake of some end. The first question we have to ask ourselves as we, as we determine whether or not this is a legitimate uh, thing to be driving us, should we only be regulated by the, by the word? Well, we have to ask ourselves a question. Does God really care that much about how he is to be worshiped? I think we would all unanimously, unanimously say, yes, God very much cares how he's to be worshipped. I want to reference a few passages for you that will also show this to us. It doesn't take us long in the book of the Bible, uh, Genesis, to see that God cares about how he's to be worshipped. In Genesis chapter 4, we see God accepting Abel's worship, but rejecting Cain's worship. In Exodus 20, we even see the first two commandments of the law devoted to the worship of God. Throughout the latter part of Exodus, we see instructions given on how they should build the tabernacle. And throughout that, God is deeply concerned with that it be shaped according to the pattern shown to you. That's a phrase commonly recited throughout Exodus. Exodus 32, this, this story we know well, the story of the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. What was God's response to this worship? Anger. Anger. He was not pleased with this worship. Uh, another account of, of God re rejecting worship would be 1 Samuel 15. Saul, as he was leading the army, was commanded, he was told by God to destroy all that was in the city, all that belonged to the Amalekites. But instead, he reserved back some of the spoil, that he might offer a sacrifice to the Lord. God rebuked Saul for this, even though seemingly he had good intentions. It was not what God had commanded him. Saul was rebuked by God. And then one last passage I'll mention, among many others that we could look to, Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Jesus, speaking with the Pharisees and the scribes, said this to them, In vain do they worship me? teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, they were, they were requiring hand-washing before 
they could involve themselves in worship. And not just, uh, they weren't, it wasn't that they were concerned with hygiene, it was for them a ritual that made them clean before God. And so Jesus rebukes them because they have added a command to the scriptures which God had not commanded them. Now we could go through all of these biblical uh, accounts, we could go through many more and can spend 15, 20 minutes per story and really try to come to a conclusion about what was it that caused God to reject some people's worship and, and caused him to accept others. But simply, for our purposes today, we don't need to concern with what it was that caused God to be displeased with their worship. We just need to be concerned with the fact that God cares. At least in these stories, all we need to take away is that God cares how he is worshipped. He made that evident as he accepted some worship and rejected others. I want to invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 10. We'll be spending our attention today. Leviticus 10. We're going to primarily look at verses 1 through 11. Leviticus 10, 1 through 11. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context about the book of Leviticus. If we were preaching through Leviticus over the course of time, we probably wouldn't need to give you as much. But here is a really quick overview of Leviticus. Leviticus follows Exodus, of course. And it picks up with a narrative right after they had built the tabernacle in Exodus. In Leviticus, it begins with God giving them instructions, giving them instructions on how they ought to perform the offerings and the sacrifices. And so for the first six chapters, the first seven verses of chapter six, it's instructions to the, to the people of Israel how they are to perform these offerings and sacrifices. And then picking up in verse eight of chapter six, all the way through chapter seven, it's instructions for the priests and how they ought to lead those sacrifices. And then in chapters eight through 10, we see the establishment of the priesthood. And that's where we'll spend most of our time today, is this establishment of the priesthood. But then in 11 through 16, we see more instruction about how God, is, uh, how God instructs the people to, be, uh, to consider cleanness versus uncleanness. And in the last 11 chapters, verses uh, chapter 17 through 27, God is concerned with the holiness of his people. And so really quickly, just from an overview of that book, we can see in the first, first chapters, a deep concern for how God is to be worshiped. These first seven chapters of instruction are very detailed, revealing that God is concerned with how he's to be worshiped. And in the last 20 or so chapters of the book, he's concerned with holiness, his own holiness, but also the holiness of his people. As we look at Leviticus 10, 1 through 11 today, I want to leave you with this truth. We are to worship God as he is, has regulated in his word so as not to violate his holiness. Again, we are to worship God as he has regulated in his word so as not to violate his holiness. Let me read for us these first 11 verses of Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. 
and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your head hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have given us instruction, you have given us your revelation to guide our lives. Through them, we are able to regard you as holy, for without your word, we would not know to. And through your word, we also learn how we are to worship. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us instructions. Woe be it that we would take this upon ourselves apart from your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your word to us. Now we can live by it and thus regard you as holy and glorify you, Lord. Lord, as we look to your word now, help us to understand it, that we might apply it to our lives and be more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we start walking through Leviticus 10, I thought it'd be helpful for us to look at the beginning of this section, just really briefly in chapter 8, where uh, Moses has been tasked with ordaining Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. And then likewise in 9, we see Aaron performing his first tabernacle service. It's interesting how um, 8 and 9 both start. Look at this in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So what we see here is that God was speaking to Moses. He gave Moses instructions, and then Moses was obedient in doing all that the Lord had commanded. Look how chapter 9 begins as well. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull, calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. 
both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord, and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded, they were obedient, in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. So what we see here is a common pattern. The Lord would reveal himself, he would give them instructions, the people would hear the instructions, and they would be obedient to do them. Uh, And I put for you in your worship guide, if you want to look there really quickly, I'm not going to go through this in detail. This is why we put this in the worship guide for you. You can take it home and and peruse uh, this uh, comparison between 8, 9, and 10 for yourselves and look up the verses. But what you'll see really quickly is this common pattern in 8 and 9. God speaking, God giving instructions, and then the people being obedient. Even in chapter 9, when it's Moses speaking, it's Moses speaking on behalf of God, so it is still the Lord's instruction and the people, Aaron and his sons particularly, being obedient to that instruction. And then we see how the story ends for chapter 8 and chapter 9. The people perform the, the ceremony. They were able to benefit from God's blessing and draw near to God in a very real way, a basic sense, a basic way we can describe worship is drawing near to God. Hebrews, such as the passage that Luke read this morning really makes that clear for us as well. Drawing near to God, another word for having communion with God in its most basic sense is worship. And so they were able to draw near and they continually did as God commanded. As a matter of fact, over these two chapters, chapter eight and chapter nine, there are 15 references to the people doing as God commanded. And several times the benefit of that is them is mentioned that they are able to draw near to God. Another thing we see that God accepts their obedience is that their offerings were a pleasing aroma. We see this in chapter 8, verse 21, again in verse 28. God had accepted their offering, and it was a pleasing aroma to him. At the end of chapter 9, we see uh, God accepting the first tabernacle sacrifices led by Aaron. He says this in chapter 9, verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. God had accepted their first tabernacle sacrifice. And so here we see a common pattern. But look how chapter 10 begins. Look how chapter 10 begins. Verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu... The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it. Let's go no further. What is clearly missing in this narrative that was present in 8 and 9? God giving his instruction. You see, worship is initiated by God, and God commands us in his word how we ought to worship. And when we worship apart from his command, it has disastrous consequences. Notice there's even a common language here. This is now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. This word take has been present in 8 and 9 as well. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take. In chapter 9, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take. But here, there is no instruction. It's just simply, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took 
his censer and put fire in it. Well, what happens when they take their censer and put fire in it and lay incense before God? Well, they have offered unauthorized worship. So they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. You might remember back in 8 and 9, what, what followed the obedience of the people of Israel in, in following God's command? Blessing. Blessing followed. What happens here? Look at verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So instead of blessing, what they received was judgment. What's really interesting here is the language in chapter 10, verse 2, compared to the language in verse 24 of the previous chapter. 9.24 begins this way, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. In 10.2 it says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. Very similar language here. It's telling what was, what was being sacrificed in the previous passage. It was a sin offering. A sin offering had been burned on behalf of the people's sin. And so this animal took the penalty of death that the people deserved. Yet here, the people experienced the penalty of death that they deserved. And verse 3 of chapter 10 tells us, why God is so concerned, what is really at stake here. Look at verse 3 with me. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We see here why God is really concerned that they worshiped apart from his word. And the reason is to worship apart from his word is to undermine who he is. It's to disregard his holiness. If God is holy, if he is one worthy of being worshiped and glorified, as the word says, should we, should Nadab and Abihu here have taken it upon themselves to worship him apart from his word? Absolutely not. Let me share with you an analogy a present-day analogy that might help you understand um, perhaps the foolishness of Nadab and Abihu here. Um, who in this room today has a boss that they answer to? You can raise your hand. Do you have a boss that you're responsible for answering to? All right. That's most of you. Most of you in here raised your hand. Now, who in this room, by show of hands, when your boss calls a meeting, who here in this room shows up to that meeting um, with your own agenda for the meeting, and you try to run the meeting apart from your boss. Any of you guys do that? No, you would never do that. That's absurd, right? That's absurd. You, if you show up to your meeting like that, it's not going to take long for your boss to think, all right, time to move on from this guy. We're, we're, moving, we're, we're moving on. We're, we're hiring someone else. So as absurd as it is for us to show up to a meeting that our boss has called and, and try to run the meeting ourselves, how absurd would it be for us to show up to a meeting that God has called and had, having already given us instructions in his word and then to somehow worship apart from that word? 
It's absurd, right? In Exodus 29, 43 and 46, just earlier, this, this absurdity that I was just talking about would not have been foreign to the people. In Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46, God says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Do you recognize that language? He says, It shall be sanctified by my glory. Here in 10.3, he says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And so here in Exodus 29, 43, he says, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to, the, to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Also in the midst of this, you see all this draw near language. I will be near them, they will be near me, I will dwell with them. This theme of drawing near is, is rich throughout these passages. It's interesting Aaron's response here. What had just happened to Aaron? Two of his four sons have been killed. And then after this word from God through Moses, it says, and Aaron held his peace. Aaron held his peace. This is someone who understands how you approach your boss. So in these first three verses, we see that Nadab and Abihu have worshipped apart from the command of God and thus have received judgment of death because what's at stake is the holiness of God and his glorification. In this next passage, verses 4 through 7, we see that Nadab and Abihu are carried out of the camp carried out of the camp. Listen to the instruction given to Aaron's cousins here in verses 4 and 5. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp as Moses had said. Consider the implications here. Of, of them being instructed to carry Nadab and Abihu out of the camp. What do the people of God historically do when they worship God? They draw near to him. They draw near. We've seen that theme already throughout this, these passages. They draw near to God. But what is, what's happening to Nadab and Abihu? They are being cast away from the presence, from the tent of meeting, from the place where God meets with his people. They are regarded as the leftovers of the burnt offerings and tossed outside of the camp with the rest of the rubbish. Because of their sin, not only did they face judgment and death, but their also remains were cast away from the temple, away from the tabernacle of God. Listen to how God responds now to Aaron and his other two sons here in verses 6 and 7. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, be well the burning that the Lord has kindled. In this verse, 
Moses and his, not Moses, sorry, Aaron and his other two sons are instructed not to mourn the death of his two sons, their two brothers. And why? For them to mourn the death would be for them to take issue with God's judgment against them. And so God instructs them, don't mourn this death. What they have done is much worse than their own consequences of death. They have defied, defiled the sanctity of God. They have undermined his holiness and failed to glorify him by not worshiping according to his word. And so don't mourn, Aaron, and your sons. Don't mourn. For to mourn is to not, not be pleased with the way that I have acted. God tells them. And listen to this verse, verse 7, this final instruction to Aaron and his two sons. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Well, it's good to see that they're back to doing according to the word and not taking things in their own hands. Aaron and his sons had been anointed as priests and they were required to remain in the tent of meeting for to go outside of it would also be to undermine their holiness. And we've already seen just in this brief overview of Leviticus that God is concerned with his worship, but he's also concerned with holiness, both of himself and of his people. And so here God expresses that again in a personal way to Aaron and his sons. Look at this last passage um, in the Leviticus for us today, 8 through 11. God now addresses Aaron. Verse 8, it says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. So God is about to task uh, Aaron with the three primary roles that the priests have. And before doing, he lays down a circumstance that he wants Aaron to be obedient to so that he can rightfully fulfill those three tasks. Now, some, some think that this instruction about um, withholding from wine and strong drink is an indication that that has something to do with what Nadab and Abihu had done earlier. Perhaps. I don't know that. Um, it's not important that we know that. What's important is that they acted apart from his word. But what is probably clear here in 8 and 9 is this instruction from God to Aaron about abstaining from drink and uh, from wine and strong drink is so that as he fulfills the obligations of the priesthood, he's able to do those with a clear mind. If he has inebriated with wine or strong drink and enters the temple in order to lead the people of Israel through these sacrifices, it's very likely that he would uh, make some mistakes. He would not be of sound mind. And so following this, God tasks Aaron and the priesthood that will follow with these three major roles. In verse 10 with me. One, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. Two, and between the unclean and the clean. And three, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So here, Aaron and the priests are to do three things. One, they're to help discern between the holy and the unholy for the purposes of sacrifices, the clean and the unclean. 
as the people come and, and make their offerings and their sacrifices. And then thirdly, they are to teach, instruct in the word of God, in the law of God, this law that came through Moses. Now, what's interesting here is that Nadab and Abihu's action in verse 1 was the complete opposite of what we see here in these two verses, 10 and 11. For one, Nadab and Abihu's unauthorized fire, their worship apart from the word, would be unholy. It would make them unclean. And furthermore, the judgment against them, causing them to be dead and then burned, was also also resulted in their uncleanness. And then finally, by them not looking to the word of God before they worshipped, they did not teach the people of God the law of God, but instead they rejected the law of God. And so here, God's instruction to Aaron was a correction for what had just taken place in Nadab and Abihu's life. And this occurrence of them trying to worship God apart from his word. So at this point, perhaps you've, you've reached the point where you're thinking, all right, all right, sacrifices, worship God according to his word. Um, we, we can look at Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 and get a good idea of how we ought to do that. Wait a minute. We don't, we, we don't bring our uh, censers in here and light up a fire and have burnt offerings and, and all these other things that we saw the Old Testament uh, people of God doing. Why is that? Why is it? And, and uh, if, if, that's, if they fail to do that, and we're not doing that, aren't we equally uh, deserving of the judgment of death? What's, what's going on here? Well, it's true. We certainly don't practice uh, worship as was, as was instructed through Leviticus, and that's for, that's for a good reason. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is now our high priest, I want to point your attention to Hebrews 7 for a moment. If you want to turn there with me, Hebrews 7. We'll begin in verse 11. We'll just hit a couple verses over the course of this chapter. In Hebrews 7, uh, beginning in verse 11, listen to this word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, before we even go any further, one thing we can discern right away is that there is a clear understanding that the, the works of the priesthood, the, the worship of the priesthood, and those worshiping through them was not the ideal. It was not perfect. It was no eternal, eternal answer for what they needed to do. If we jump over a little bit later on in the chapter, uh, jump to verse 18 for me. Verse 18, Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You recognize that language? Through which we draw near to God. So what is this? What is this? this new and better hope that's been introduced that allows us to draw near to God. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice that, that phrase again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So got, Christ is our new and great high priest. He replaces, he fulfills the priesthood order in the Old Testament. And having fulfilled that, having been God, having been perfect, having been the victim of the sacrifices himself, he is an eternal high priest who has already accomplished the sacrifice once and for all. And so if he's already accomplished this sacrifice once and for all and allowed us to draw near to him through Christ, then that, that has implications for how we worship. So no, we don't continue to perform Old Testament sacrifices. No, we don't continue to bring grain offerings and peace offerings and, and other things uh, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Yet, the principle of God's desire for worship remains the same. God desires that we worship him according to his word, and he still desires that he be worshiped appropriately. He still cares deeply about he, how he has been how he is to be worshipped. Well, since Jesus is our great high priest, thus serving as the ultimate fulfillment of Old Testament sacrifices, we must look then to where? For how we ought to worship? The New Testament. The New Testament. We are on this side of the cross. We should look to the New Testament for how we should worship. I do think it's important, though, before we get into a discussion of, of these items that we ought to include in worship, a distinction between three categories of items. Uh, elements, forms, and circumstances. So elements are those things that have the most restriction by the word. These are the things that are commanded to be in the word or demonstrated in the, in the New Testament church that they were in the, in the practice of worship. Elements have the most restriction. This is where our conversation in a second will move. But other things to consider are forms. This has a little bit less restrictions but still uh, has, has things to be considered about them. So for example, an element might be a song. Um, a form might be the lyrics to that song. There's freedom in, in the lyrics of our songs. There's freedom in the words of our prayers. There's freedom in the words of our sermons. Yet, they must still be held to the text of Scripture for soundness and richness. And then a third category with even more freedom would be circumstances. Circumstances. Circumstances would be things like the color of the carpet in the room or the, or the time that we worship on a Sunday or whether, or whether Pastor Laramie wears a tie or not. And by the way, as soon as I get my neck size down a little bit, I'll wear, I'll wear a tie. We're getting there. I'm, I like wearing suits, but I'm just not quite there yet. And so this, these are circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean that we should just haphazardly approach these things as if they, they don't matter. They still matter. There just happens to be more freedom than in previous items. So with circumstances, we could, um, the time that we worship on a Sunday morning um, is, is 10.15. We begin corporate worship at 10.15 at Woodlawn. Now, it's a circumstance, so we have a little bit of freedom here. We could start worship at 10.30, or we could start it at 10, or we could start it at 2.30 a.m., but that wouldn't be wise. We would have very few people that would uh, be able to come and worship with us or that would 
get up in the early mornings and come worship. So circumstances still need to be approached wisely. So what we're going to talk about now, though, is elements. These things which have the strictest guidance from Scripture on them. And we're going to hit seven of them. There are seven elements that we see in the New Testament. We're going to hit seven of them, and we're going to hit them really quickly. So we're going to put the items on the screen, and we're going to put the Scripture references next to them. Don't even try to turn to each of these as we hit them. Just take notes along the way, and then you can, you can read these for yourselves later. But here are the seven elements that we see prescribed in the New Testament. The first one, reading the Word. And Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. The second one is preaching the Word. The previous Timothy passage talked about exhortation and to teaching, but even in 2 Timothy, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A third element of worship is singing. Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 share common language of singing to one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. The fourth one is prayer. In Matthew 21, even Jesus regarded, regarded the place of their worship to be a house of prayer. And then Paul, again, charging Timothy with this, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And this was in the context of his eldership, his leading of the church. A fifth one is giving. In 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs them on the first day of every week. That's Sunday. That's, that's this time right now. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And then sixth, baptism. Baptism is actually included in the church's mission, mission statement here in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the Lord's Supper. We see this instituted by Christ, but we also see it in 1 Corinthians as Paul gives the Corinthian church instructions for how they ought to proceed with the Lord's Supper. He says this at the end of that passage, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So these are seven elements that we see prescribed and instructed on in the New Testament. And therefore, we, as New Testament churches ourselves, should be practicing these elements. I want to take just a minute and recommend a book to you on worship. It's called What Happens When We Worship by Jonathan Landry Cruz. In my opinion, you ready? This is a bold statement. In my opinion, this is the best book outside of the scriptures written on worship. And not only that, it's a really simple book really written with the layperson in mind to read. So I want to encourage you to, get to, to check this book out. We actually have a bunch of copies. And instead of going on Amazon and paying $18, you can see Leslie after the service and she can give you one for 10 bucks. So if you want to read what I think is one of the best books on worship, I, I, I commend this to you very much so. And it's not written with the academic in mind. It's really written. It's written by a pastor with a layperson in mind. So I want to encourage you to check that book out. Um, but as we, as we continue on now, it's, it might still come to you just in the same way that earlier we thought, okay, all these Old Testament practices, we don't do them. Why? Why not? Well, we talked about Jesus as our high priest. But even now, 
going through these seven elements of, of worship that we see in the New Testament, you might still ask yourself, all right, thanks, Pastor Larry. Thanks for telling us all the elements that you plan each week. Um, but really, all the application is, is for you as you plan, and, and for Pastor Lewis and Travis as they help lead in, in worship as well. Well, sure, it is true that you know, the great responsibility rests on us to make sure that we are leading you in an appropriate way, but that doesn't get you off the hook either. I want to share a few things with you as we close here. Well, first of all, it is true we're not priests in the sense of the Old Testament, um, we have a great high priest. Jesus is our high priest. We are not priests. Lewis, Travis, and I, we are not priests. However, there is still a role that the priests carry that we still carry today as those that the New Testament has set aside as pastors, and that is of teaching the Word. And just as that was a priestly role, it continues in the New Testament as a pastoral role of teaching. But Hebrews 13 is really interesting. Hebrews 13 tells us, and I say us, I mean Travis, Lewis, and I, it says that we are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So as, for, as Lewis, Travis, and I are, are, are practicing shepherding you guys, we know that one day we'll have to answer for the way in which we led you. We will have to answer to God for that. And so there is much, much, much at stake as we do that. But a second the second thing I want, to, I want to say is that you have a role in that as well. Listen to the rest of Hebrews 13. Let them do this, that is them, that's Travis, Luce, and I, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what I would encourage you in as, as a way of application, that when you approach worship, that you ought to desire that which God has commanded. It's, it's not infrequent that someone might uh, desire something that's not commanded in Scripture. And it might be that they desire something that's not necessarily off-limits, but by the fact of having that desire, apart from a desire to, to sanctify God, as he is concerned with here in Leviticus 10.3, instead of that, once we put our, our own pleasures at the forefront of what we're doing, no longer is God on the throne of our worship, but then we become on the throne of our worship. So my first encouragement to you and to help us lead you faithfully is to approach worship with the right attitude of seeking that which God has commanded and not that which God has not commanded, perhaps even for your own personal preference. A second thing that we should be careful of is our attitudes as we worship. It's really easy to, to come into worship and to be thoughtless, to kind of be nonchalant about worship, to to let our minds wander. But if, if it's true what God says, that he, among those who draw near to him, he will be sanctified and he will be glorified, if that is true, then our minds ought to be fixed on him at all times in worship. You know, so Pastor Lewis and I have spent the most time in front of you, and it's really easy to see when uh, we're singing um, only a holy God and singing of the holiness of God, and then a couple of you might be turning to each other and laughing and having a good time about who the saints ought to get as their next quarterback. You know, so we see those things. And so I just want to encourage you, you during worship, have the right attitude. Approach it with a more careful and more thoughtful way when we worship. Because God cares deeply about how he is to be worshipped. But I'll also say this. I want to also say this. You're not the bad guy. We need to be held accountable as well. 
So as the ones who are planning and leading you in worship every week, we need to be held accountable. We, we're going to get it wrong. Just to be honest with you, there's going to be times when uh, we're going to get something wrong in worship, we're going to get something wrong in what we say, or a song that we choose, or perhaps we even bring in an element that's not even prescribed. There are going to be times when we get it wrong. And so hold us accountable for that. We're, um, we're, we're big boys. We can, we can handle some, some, some accountability. So, so feel free to come to us and say, hey, um, you know, God's word says this, but you know, I, this is what I, I know. So now be kind, be kind, but hold us, hold us accountable. We need that in our lives. And then the last thing I want to leave you with is that we are going to get it wrong. They, we're, just as much as Nadab and Abihu got it wrong, we will get it wrong as well. But this is what causes us to respond in two ways. One, repentance. When we get it wrong, we should repent and get it right. But then secondly, we should respond with thankfulness. Because when we get it wrong, we know that we can rest in the redeeming work of Christ who is our great high priest, who perfects our flawed, our flawed worship. He's our great high priest, but he's also the one who made it possible by being the victim of the penalty that we deserved. We deserved that punishment, but he took it upon himself. And so when we get it wrong, it should cause us to repent, but be thankful for what God has done for us through Christ. Did you notice how Leviticus, we're not going to go through Leviticus 10, the rest of it, but did you notice in your worship guide, how Leviticus 10 ends. Levit- Leviticus 10 ends in the same way that 8 and 9 ended. Yeah, Nadab and Abihu acted inappropriately and faced God's judgment, but really quickly, the people of God were back to obeying the command of God, and then God continued to bless them as his people. God is gracious. He's good to us. We, too, are the beneficiaries of this grace from God, even in the midst of our mistakes and our sinfulness in life and even in worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we are indeed humbled to come and draw near to you in worship. Lord, we lament the times when we wrongly worship, when we worship in a way that doesn't seek first your sanctification in our body, your glorification here, Lord, we should be chiefly concerned with your holiness and all that flows out of that. And as we worship you each Sunday, most often beginning our time by you revealing yourself to us as holy and us responding to you with praise and adoration, where it quickly leads us to a time of confession of who we are, of people that are, are far from holy. But Lord, you revealed to us through Christ that we can be holy. And in that way, you've perfected us and allowed us to draw near to you and to worship you. You've given us the assurance of our salvation. And Lord, that's not a free ticket to do as we please, knowing that we have assurance. Lord, it's motivation for us to want to follow your instruction even more and more. And so, Lord, each week we are thankful for the proclamation of your word. We're thankful that you have equipped and enabled us by your spirit 
to respond to your word and to serve you. Lord, thank you for sending us into the world to serve you, that others would know you and enjoin with us in the pattern of biblical worship. Would you, for just a moment this morning, as your heads are bowed, would you consider your own desires as you come to worship? Think on how you have approached worship. Have you desired your own elements or your own or being catered to? Reflect for a moment what it says about our hearts when we, when we approach God apart from his word. Now for a moment, consider what it means when we do approach God according to his word. Who is chief in our hearts when we worship God according to his word? This morning, if you are um, an unbeliever, you've yet to trust in Christ. The news for you is that you are not able to draw near to God. Apart from Christ, you cannot draw near to God. Apart from Christ, you have no hope of eternal life. Even in a conversation about worship, it is rich with the gospel as it is Christ who makes our worship possible by being our mediator between us and God, having given his life on the cross, raising from the dead, conquering sin and death. Will you trust in this man today, who is the Son of God, who allows us by faith to draw near to God? Myself and Pastor Lewis and Pastor Travis will be available afterwards as we sing in response, if you have a question about knowing Christ, would you see one of us? Secondly, if there's a need that's weighing heavily on your heart for prayer, and you'd like to share that with us, we invite you to, to come forward and to, to visit with one of us, and we will be delighted to pray for you. And thirdly, perhaps you know that you're a believer, you've trusted in Christ, you're a guest with us here at Woodlawn, you've been visiting for a while, and, and you know that this is a place in which you want to place uh, your membership. Membership isn't just a name on a roll, but membership is being an active part of a local body and being affirmed by that body. If this describes you, one of us would love to speak with you about that as well. Lord, as we, as we continue in worship, as we have heard from you and as we've responded to you, and, and now as we've heard from you in your word in Leviticus 10, let us Glory in you as our Redeemer in song. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.